Welcome to the fourth episode of The F Team. The F Team is a fortnightly podcast brought to you by the team at Fast Track Technology. I'm Hayden Van Roon. In today's episode, we cover announcements from Microsoft's first all-digital Ignite conference, the latest in foldable computing, and we uncover learnings from the recent Microsoft 365 outage. Let's get into it, shall we? Let's talk as we do every week uh, by starting with Microsoft 365. And to do that, I've brought my second and third favorite end user computing specialists, and that's in no particular order, Brody Handorf and Varun Kapoor. Welcome, gents. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I thought you guys would have had your fill uh, last episode, but uh, you're back for seconds, or, or is it thirds? I'm on my third century here. Good, nice. Well, it's good to have you both here. There's obviously um, Ignite happened uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I'm really keen to get your thoughts on it. But we can't really start talking about Ignite um, until we get the big elephant in the room out of the way. What's the elephant in the room? Well, uh, on the 29th of September, uh, users of Microsoft uh, 365, uh, Outlook, Office 365, Exchange, SharePoint, OneDrive, and Azure reported uh, that they were unable to log in. Instead, they were presented with a transient error message informing them that it was a problem with signing them in. For a span of three to five hours, if you're a Microsoft 365er and you weren't already logged in, you could not log in. So it was a pretty big deal. Um, so the first hint of the issue was a message on the Microsoft 365 status page, Twitter page that is, um, that said, we've identified a recent change that appears to be the source of the issue. We're rolling back the change to mitigate the impact. Uh, this was shortly followed by, um, uh, we're not observing an increase in the successful connections after rolling back a recent change. We're working to evaluate additional mitigation solutions while we investigate, investigate the root cause. So during that time, users still not able to log in. Gents, what happened to cause this dev oops moment? <laughs> this whole segment was just created for you to say dev oops. <laughs> So uh, going through the uh, PIR uh, that was released through the partner center earlier, uh, earlier last week, I believe it was, um, it like most of the issue came down to the function that prevents them from rolling out new features to their prod environment and focuses on their dev environment. That particular feature wasn't working as intended. So there was a change that they pushed through intending for it to go through to their, uh, their dev circle essentially, and it ended up rolling out to the public circle and, causing a whole bunch of grief. <laughs> so all the tech geeks, I'll just add some more context here. So whenever they uh, roll out the changes, they do it across five rings over several days. And in this case, what happened was the, uh, the STP system failed to correctly target the validation ring and it ended up rolling out in the prod and the div. And that's why it, went, it just went down. If only Microsoft had a test environment, right? If only they had a test environment for their test environment, this whole thing could have been avoided. Hence, their oops. Just, yeah. just test environments <laughs> all the way down. Um, and so do we, do we have a good understanding of how they actually fixed the issue? So they uh, just released a brief statement about it. And they said that they took some steps to revert the automated rollback systems. And that's how they reverted back the change. We are still waiting for an in-detail explanation about it, but it's Microsoft. <laughs> I think the best we'll get is if prod environment do not roll out. <laughs> Our shell. 
So pretty, pretty big, uh, pretty big issue. Um, you know, um, you, um, a lot of users across the world would have, um, would have experienced it. Um, and obviously it highlights the need for, for some form of hybrid or, or, or backup environment. We won't really go into that. That's a, that's a big topic upon itself. And maybe we'll, maybe we'll uh, highlight that for another day. But um, yeah, just wanted to, to talk quickly about that. Um, a lot of users would have experienced that that issue. And um, as much as we're you know fans of a lot of the stuff that Microsoft does, um, uh, that's not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but on to more positive things, more exciting things. So um, uh, one of the obviously the, the, we wanted to make this almost an ignite special, um, and. Uh, you know, on the 24th and the 25th of September, we got a very massive Microsoft event. And um, for those who are unfamiliar with Ignite, uh, it's Microsoft's annual gathering of technology leaders and practitioners. And it's been running since about 2015. And so the great thing about Ignite is that it combines a lot of the smaller IT conferences um, that Microsoft used to have that are really specialized. So we're talking about TechEd, the Management Summit, Exchange uh, Conference, SharePoint conference, the Link conference. Uh, not that anyone would be too excited about that um, nowadays, but, um, and, and there's a bunch of other ones that kind of rolled into the one event. And the good thing about that is that there's something for everything at these events. And often the topics that they have span beyond just, you know, oh, this is your sysadmin type event. And this is an event for business technology leaders. And this is for sales and partner managers and all that sort of stuff. Um, you guys went to last year's event, right? Which was an in-person event. Yes. Yeah. So it was actually but... this year in, yeah. Yes. It was the 2019 Ignite, but it was yeah. 2020 for us. 2020, so. yep. <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, this one was a was a um, all-digital event. Um, and I know that I think that's a, obviously we know why that is. Um, uh, but I think it was, you know, I, I certainly have been to, I think, most ignites since 2015 and uh it's you know it's a really uh, really good event to go to in person there's a lot of networking opportunities and i think you know unfortunately we didn't get that but the good thing is we did um it was a very highly produced event there was lots of um, really good content across lots of different stuff um and today you know there's, there's so much we can't cover it all today but i just wanted to highlight and and, and get um, you know, your feedback and, and thoughts on some of the big productivity stuff that's come out. And uh, so let's start with um, productivity score. Um, so productivity uh, score was actually announced back in April, but was released into general availability this month. So productivity score help, uh, aims to help organizations understand how their teams are working and how efficiently they are um, using Microsoft 365. So um, Brody, uh, what insights uh, can productivity score uncover about teamwork in our organizations? Yeah, cool. So a large part of the score idea is just to sort of give admins a better understanding of you know, exactly how well the adoption of the Microsoft ecosystem is going through. And a big part of that is, is teamwork. A lot of the tools and uh, products are designed to you know, get people working together as easily as possible. And especially in times like this, as remotely as possible as well. So uh, what it can show is a large, uh, a, a large, uh, portion of the of the teamwork score is centered around collaborative working so showing 
which users and how many users are making use of shared files or Teams threads or channels or even email conversations, um, as well as seeing this growth over time. So if you're just rolling out these features, well, I hope you're not rolling out email just now, but if you're rolling out Teams now, just sort of getting an understanding of how it's being adopted by your users and how it's being used by it. It sort of gives better visibility over uh, workspaces that aren't being used as well. So if there's particular Teams channels that maybe they were uh, built specifically for a project which is no longer being used or built for a business function which doesn't happen as often anymore then it shows these as well so you're able to go ahead and archive them and just keep the, the channels and, and teams that are alive <clears throat> and keep them open and ready for content it also shows as well how frequent a lot of these workspaces are being used so you can get an understanding that if you've, you're rolling out teams and it's not being used or it's being used one day a week in, in most situations then maybe your users need better training on it, or maybe it just needs to be reevaluated how it's being used for your business. So just oh, maybe you've got another app that they're using instead. Maybe they, maybe mm. if you've got Skype available or you're transitioning from another, another competitive app like Slack or something, um, you know, there's not enough has been done to push them across um, or to incentivize them to get across as well. Right. Yeah, exactly right. So linking it in with, with uh, cloud app security it sort of gives a, a really good understanding of exactly how effective the products, the Microsoft products that you've rolled out are in your business for, for teamwork. Mm. And it's not just uh, teamwork, um, Vrun, there's some, there's some insights about um, uh, meetings that we can uncover okay. with our productivity um, score as well, right? Yeah, so the whole point of launching the productivity score for meetings specifically so if you look at the pre-COVID era, we used to have that personal meetings in the meeting rooms and stuff like that. But now it's not the case, right? We are all work from home. So the whole point of launching it to gain more insights about how the meetings are happening these days. So you can drill down um, to specific users, how much time they're spending in the meeting. Are the meetings going over 30 minutes or under 30 minutes? And what kind of experience they are having? Yeah. So they have also integrated end, endpoint analytics with um, the, uh, the productivity score for the meetings. So what will that do is like it will tell uh, the IT admins that how their devices are behaving when uh, they're launching the meetings. Because we all have been in a position when, you know, we uh, launch the meetings and it's just stuck in a loop. So that will also help us understand how the devices are happening and uh, what kind of updates need to be pushed out. So I think so it's a pretty good move and obviously you will get more insights and more data about your users and what are they doing in terms of meetings and collaboration. That's one. Um, and there's, there's some also some insights we can get um, around Microsoft 365 app health, which I think you were kind of hinting at before. Yes. Um, so what, what are the, yeah, so what, there, is there anything else we need to know about, um, you know, the insights you can get from Microsoft 365 app health? Uh, so it will basically tell you about um, the update channels that you're using for the organization. Usually yeah. Microsoft recommends for the monthly channel so that you keep getting the stable updates. But um, again, it depends upon what kind of channel you are using. So it will tell you like how many devices are on a specific channel version for that apps. And then based upon that, you can obviously troubleshoot and then you know uh, uh, make the experience better for the end users. Nice. So it's a pretty powerful tool. And I think it kind of goes back to what we're talking about with Ignite, right? There's, you know, yeah. it, it, technology is uh, insights about technology is, aren't just for 
you know, IT admins, you know, it, it, um, all of the statistics we're talking about there, particularly the first two teamwork and meetings, that's something that, you know, senior management is going to want to know. Exactly. How, how are people working within their organization and how are they using the tools and, and um, is, you know, are they using it to the best ability or is it disruptive or, you know, are they not using it in the way that you kind of want? So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing and I think there's a lot of value to be taken out of that. Yeah. The next thing I wanted to raise was Microsoft Stream. So there's some really big changes. So anyone who's um, who who's who's been recording um, Teams meetings um, will be familiar with Microsoft Stream. Um, it's basically the platform you use to to watch back the recordings and and uh, look at the transcriptions. And it's a it's been a fairly good app, but there's been some pretty big changes to the way um, Microsoft wants us to use it. So um, basically Microsoft has announced that they've, they're going to completely rebuild it um, and making it the default video platform for all Microsoft 365 apps. So Microsoft plans to migrate um, customers uh, on the original um, Microsoft stream service to the new stream service over, over the course of a couple of months. So, um, you know, uh, we're still going to, it's still going to be the video stream platform, but what are the, what are the limitations around the current state of team of sorry of uh, stream that have prompted uh, Microsoft to, to rebuild it in this way? So on a high level, like the current stream service isn't really consistent with the rest of the M365 suite. So that is in terms of the architecture, the channels, permissions, governance, sharing and guest access. So stream currently powers a video uploaded to stream, but not with the rest of the M365 apps, which includes app SharePoint teams and office. So currently, if you look at it, it's currently a siloed product or service. So I think so that's why they are migrating the service again so that it's available um, to be uploaded to uh, OneDrive or SharePoint for the users. So I think so that's kind of the current backdrop of it. A big move forward as well is, is sort of giving a bit more control over the files that are actually in there. I'm not sure if you gents have ever tried, but it's, it's actually pretty difficult to get a, a, a uh, high level of control over each individual file that's sitting in there. So I think a big advantage of it moving over to the SharePoint architecture is hopefully being able to, you know, have a bit more uh, uh, finer control over the specific files and videos that are being uploaded there. So you can make better use of them rather than just being uploaded and, and once and done sort of thing, having a bit more uh, control over it will be good. So let's talk about that. So what, how are they? Um, so you mentioned SharePoint um, teams. So what, is the what are they planning what's this new um format for stream actually look like so i haven't seen any specific images yet i believe it's going to be quite similar to how it's looking in sharepoint and onedrive i, I feel like as Vern was saying before a big move is to make it as uniform as everything else currently it looks pretty different to all the other platforms so i think we'll, we can expect something looking similar to onedrive and uh, similar to uh, SharePoint in that regard, especially being built on the same architecture. Nice one. Well, I think, yeah, I think from an end user perspective, you know, how we use video is, this is, is going to be the big, the big shift, right? So traditionally, um, if you want to record video, you have to either record a Teams meeting um, or go into, into Teams backend and, and film it there. So the big end user move, right, is being able to record stream video um, in Teams or in SharePoint app so that you can actually create that video in the context of, of what that video is about. So if you're um, recording, if you, so for example, our product um, 
development team for our Microsoft Teams Voice product, we have a channel that we use to talk about Microsoft Teams Voice, right? So we're gonna, we can cre create video directly in team in that team's channel, or we can directly create um, video in the, in the SharePoint folder that we're using to capture our, um, our fortnightly catch-ups around and, and status updates for the, the, the development of that product, right? So whereas currently now, um, you're limited to the meeting that you're recorded in or the back end of, um, of Microsoft Teams. So, uh, sorry, back end of, of Stream. Um, so I think from a user end, user perspective, um, that's gonna be the big change, right? Yeah. And also it will make the sharing with the guests as well a bit more easier because now it's going to be stored in SharePoint online and OneDrive. So sharing also becomes better in, in this migration. That's a good point. Um, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, video is becoming very important just beyond, you know, obviously in, in the marketing space, it's been a very important mm -hmm. tool, but um, just for com communicating in organizations, video has become super important. Exactly. And so it's a really good move that Microsoft's supporting, um, you know, the creation management um, and distribution of, of video internally and externally, right? Yeah. Um, so that's really good. Um, the next thing I want to talk about um, uh, is around, there's a whole bunch of changes, obviously in Teams. We talk about it almost every week, it sounds like, or every, every episode. Um, and the one that, that got me off the bat, really excited um, was collaborative calling. So one of the one of the things many of our customers and I just touched on before are using um, uh, uh, for sorry one of the things our Microsoft Teams customers are using um, is Microsoft Teams Voice, um, and they're using it to call landlines and mobiles using the Teams app, right? Um, which is obviously not something you can do with the traditional app, you have to have a, a service provider who can, who can turn that on for you. Um, uh, and so the, what collaborative calling does is that um, it uh, allows uh, you to link a call queue uh, to a Teams channel, um, which I think is actually a really, really important thing for um, connecting calls and the way we manage calls with the way we manage teams and the way teams manage those calls. Um, so, but I guess anyone who's not familiar with call queues and, and Microsoft Teams voices is probably not going to be quite sure about what we're talking about. So Brody, um, can you give some insight into what a call queue is and why we should care? Yeah, sure. So if you've ever been in an organization that has <clears throat> any kind of uh, hot desk or a sales line, then you've probably been in a call queue before. You've probably used them on, on a regular basis. Uh, fundamentally, it's just a collection of, of users or call agents that are sitting you know, in, in a group that are ready to receive calls from another from a user. So if a user calls into the H into the help desk line, there's probably a group of uh, support analysts sitting behind there ready to take that call. Um, and so that's really all the call queue comes down to on a fundamental uh, level in, in most phone systems. Um, so I feel like this is a move towards integrating it more with Microsoft Teams as well, which is just a huge advantage, being able to uh, split it out into a channel and be able to deliver the information and <clears throat> deliver the calls a lot more quickly to who they're trying to get in touch with. It's just a huge advantage. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing. And I think, um, you know, Marcus, you know, integrated calling with, you know, Microsoft Teams is a really, um, you know, really big thing at the moment. A lot of organizations are, are looking into it and a lot of organizations have already d adopted it. So 
you know, the way, you know, just making integrating that as part of, of, of how we operate in teams um, through the channels and being able to interact with those, um, those, those call cues in the channel, I think is a really important thing. Um, the next thing I want to talk about was um, the ability to trans. So one of the announcements I was most excited about was um, Microsoft has announced um, that uh, you'll be able to soon transfer calls between your mo and a call that you're already on from um, your mobile to desktop. So by that, I mean, you could be on the train, take a Teams call um, and then arrive at the office, um, sit down at your desk and then transfer that call to your desktop without having to hang up and, and recall. Um, so guys, just keen to get your thoughts on this one. Um, I'm really excited about this. Is it a big change or am I just excitable? I think so. It's more of a user experience change. Like obviously while we are on the go, uh, we obviously prefer that if you are on mobile phone and we reach our desk, we want the calls to be immediately transferred to the laptops or whatever device we are using. But I think so. It, we should be excited about it. It's, it's a good user, good uh, user experience stage at the end of the day. It's kind of like what, what we talked about last um, episode where we, the start new conversation button, just exactly. a simple change. <laughs> Um, but you know, it stops you from, you know, uh, starting a new thread instead of replying to an existing thread. It's just, it's another thing, you know, we don't have to say everyone just hold off while I hang up and, and rejoin. Yeah. And, um, it's those, it's the simple things, uh, simple changes that, that actually make a big difference that you're going to experience, you know, once a day sort of thing. So yeah, I yeah. think, I think that's, that's the value of it. Right. Um, the next thing, um, is a kind of similar idea, right? Um, so in Microsoft Teams Rooms, the latest um, app for Microsoft Teams Rooms on Windows, um, so that's version 4.6.20.0, um, is now available, uh, which, in, uh, which includes the 3 by 3 gallery view, which means that we can now view up to nine participants in a meeting gallery view when hosting a meeting in Microsoft Teams Rooms. Hallelujah. Um, yes. So <laughs> Guys, what, why is it so important that, to have a three by three gallery view available on Teams Rooms now? I, mean, I think it's just <clears throat> it's just nice to be able to see all the people that are talking. Really, it's, it's just a little bit uh, distracting sometimes having a meeting. It's it's easy to lose track of how many people are in a call and be able to address everyone if you can't see everyone's faces. And uh, we keep coming back to this point, but whilst everyone is is more remote working and you know less people are in the offices, more people are calling in from from home, you want to have that functionality still so that when people return to the offices or if they're in the offices now, they have the same, the same sort of uh, experience on Teams rooms as they do on their computer as well. So I think it's just a well needed change really. That's right. And like, if you think about it, it's, you know, in a meeting room, that's where you normally have the largest screen, right? So we've got these huge, you know, for an hour, I think we've got a, is it a 60 inch screen or? I think so, it's 80. 80, 80 inch, we've got this 80 yeah. inch screen and we can only have four people on it at once. Like, yeah. what's that about? Like, so, um, no, it's really good. Um, I think now uh, people's on, an, on the three by three view, people's faces will be pretty much about the same size as they are in real life. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. So Unless you are a big head. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I fit into that category yet and I'm not sure, but... Um, <laughs> Very good. And is this is this uh, feature available now, or like, as in, all, will all of our managed Microsoft Teams Rooms customers uh, have that 
feature right now or will it take some time for them to, to receive that update, do we think? So I believe it's scheduled to come out by the end of this quarter. They've definitely been testing it for quite a while. I've been reading about it almost all year, it feels like. Um, uh, so I, I definitely feel like it's going to be out by, by Christmas, which would be a nice little gift for the holidays. <laughs> yes, very good. Um, and the next thing, um, so there's so many, as I said, there's so many uh, features on, on Teams that we can talk about and we're going to. Um, the next one is uh, Microsoft has announced a touchless meeting experience that allows you to control the meeting with a separate mobile or laptop device. Um, so what are the key features around this, this, uh, this feature, guys? So I think so. this is more of a thoughtful move from Microsoft because of the COVID scenario. So with this touchless um, Teams feature, you'll be able to mute or unmute the room, um, turn on the camera, turn it off, exit the meeting. So the whole point of uh, it is um, prevent the users from using the shared device in the essence. And um, yeah, that's about it. I think that the other thing, uh, I think that's all very true. And the additional thing is that not everyone has a super fancy Logitech meetings room set up, right? So yeah. we have a lot of, um, we have a integrated, um, you know, purpose-built Microsoft Teams video conferencing tool. So we have all, of, all the things that we need to do, adjusting the camera and, 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 and managing the Teams um, uh, meeting from that technology happens because yeah. it's integrated. But not everyone's going to maybe have that. So mm-hmm. the ability to use a separate device to connect and manage the features um, means that anyone who doesn't have a, a purpose-built tool is getting the ability to, to manage it more effectively from their device and they're given more control. So that's, that's the other thing I think is, is worth mentioning. Um, cool. Um, the next uh, thing I want to raise was around security. So again, um, you know, going back years ago, Microsoft went through this process of realizing that they had hundreds and hundreds of portals to manage. Um, and particularly in security. And so they've been on this journey of, of you know, um, condensing the amount of portals they've got um, and uh, making it a bit easier for sysadmins to navigate them. And, and certainly um, that's been true for, for Microsoft Defender and there's been a big update. So um, Microsoft uh, in, two, in early 2019, they rebranded Windows Defender to be Microsoft Defender. And now um, that rebranding exercise has continued and um, they've brought more products under that, that Microsoft Defender, um, I guess, product name, right? Uh, so now Microsoft 365 Defender includes Microsoft Threat Protection, obviously, um, Microsoft Defender Endpoint. So that was previously Microsoft Defender Advanced Threat Protection. Um, so now that's Microsoft Defender for Endpoint, which is under the stack. Um, there's Microsoft Defender for Office 365, which is interesting. So this is a this is a product that we're really excited about. We have been for a long time. That was previously Office 365 Advanced Threat Protection. So now that's Microsoft Defender for Office 365. Um, and then the, the last one is Microsoft Defender for Identity, um, which was previously Azure Advanced Threat Protection. So all of those tools coming up um, uh, into the Microsoft 365 Defender brand. Um, guys, uh, it's good that they're all consistently named and under the same thing, but what does that, how does that, uh, br- that rebrand and these changes affect the way we, as sysadmins, security professionals, um, access the security features in this, in this way? So what was that portal name again? I forgot, I forgot the name of the feature. Was it? Uh, it was 
Microsoft Defender, the whole thing Microsoft is Microsoft Defender, right. Yeah, sorry, I didn't That's quite catch point. that. <laughs> <laughs> didn't quite catch that the first 10 times. <clears throat> no, I think this is a, a great step to just continue unifying it all. It's, it's, it's frankly just a pain to keep track of all the different security portals and all the different products and, and the right place to go to make sure you're attacking the threat in the right way. And you, you don't really want to be you know, just thinking about which portal to access to manage an issue. So the fact that they're continuing to bring things under smaller and smaller banners is just a, a great move in simplifying it and speeding up the, uh, or, or rather clarifying exactly what you're doing and where you're doing it. So I, th I think it's just a, another quality of life improvement. There have been some additional features that they're bringing in as well. Um, but I feel like the, the main, uh, uh, the main selling point here is just the continued, you know, um, simplifying of, of exactly what the product is. Also another thing to add here, like, uh, is, um, uh, Microsoft is currently heavily focusing on uh, Azure Sentinel as well. So at this stage, Microsoft Defender will be Microsoft's uh, XDR product and Azure Sentinel will be the company seams line. So Azure Sentinel um, is deeply integrated with Microsoft Defender so that you know we can integrate the XDR data in few clicks and combine it with all the security data from across the organization. So I think so um, they are doing quite a lot of integrations in that space, which is quite a good move. And all the SOC guys would be happy with it. <laughs> I think that's the that's the big win. I think the stock guys are the are the big winners in this. I don't think the end users exactly. do much about it, but um, certainly how we navigate around and and uh, monitor the different tools and 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 change the policies and, and whatnot. I think um, I think that's a really good change. And I think I'd like to welcome back a very special guest, um, Mr. Nathan Ned Kettle. Thanks for joining your second F team, uh, Nathan. Uh, it feels like we've been doing it for years, mate. <laughs> well, um, we've got some topics to talk about, so let's just let's get straight into it, eh? Um, so, Nathan, you'll know better than most um, that your next smartphone or tablet uh, might actually flip open to reveal its screen and fold up when you're ready to put it away, just like the old-school clamshell phones of the 1990s. There's a growing list of foldable devices on the market today and even more on the horizon. Uh, the Samsung has the Galaxy Fold, Huawei has the Mate X, Microsoft has the Duo, uh, and Lenovo even has a folding tablet, the X1 Fold. So the big question I wanted to discuss today um, with you, Ned, is, is are foldable devices something we even want? And you know, I get this is a pretty big question. So let's start um, with um, why do we even have foldable, mark, uh, foldable devices in the market right now? It's kind of a situation that we're, we're harking back to, um, as you know, because you, you and I are old enough to remember a lot of the early uh, mobile phones having to have some sort of uh, flip functionality in order to get the, 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 the ability to use it in a, in a carryable sort of, you know, usable form factor. Uh, so what we're seeing is um, yeah, a repeat of history in that sense. Um, it's basically a natural solution um, to the problem of the growing demands that we put on the technology. Um, uh, uh, just to have a look at the, you know, the sort of cause and effect, a, a recent Gartner study um, on evolving mobile productivity trends uh, concluded that workers are turning to performing tasks on mobile devices at an increasing rate. Um, it hasn't plateaued. Uh, it's not going down. It's only increasing year on year. 
Um, this is especially true in technology-driven enterprises such as our own, uh, but also others as well. Um, uh, and especially uh, with um, organizations that seem to have a higher percentage of um, the millennial uh, generation making use of this sort of technology. So there's pressures there in the workspace that is um, causing the technology to evolve uh, as the, the needs arise. <clears throat> Even if we look back um, to a 2016 study uh, by um, CITO, uh, the top responses for the different outcomes categories uh, of mobile and application usage were uh, improved business process was the top response. Um, the use of productivity apps was the main use case for uh, mobile devices uh, and enabling mobile access to enterprise systems was the main outcome that um, these responses were looking for. So what we're seeing is just an increased demand on mobile technology to fill gaps in the productivity workflow. Which is, was probably a huge difference in the way we thought about, you know, mobile devices 10, even maybe five years ago, um, where I'm sure if you'd asked those questions, it would have been around, you know, being able to make calls really quickly and easily, the efficiency, like being able to access social media, um, those kind of apps, and probably the, the productivity styles probably by, um, would the, probably, the, the productivity needs were probably driven by, um, you know, use, users who are like, uh, you know, um, like marketing type people who can use the apps that already kind of were, were um, around on mobile devices, um, but not necessarily the, the you know, the productivity style, office style apps, right? It's a real big shift in that mentality, it sounds like. Definitely. And the, the technology shifted as well. And that's something we'll touch on, um, you know, as that arises, I think um, there's definitely um, developments in the, the app stacks between PC uh, and mobile, just because of the differing technologies that they run on. Interesting. So, you know, when we when we're talking about foldable devices, then what what do we think? You know, there's obviously, as you mentioned, there's there's consumers are flagging. You know, we want to mobile type devices that um, make us more productive and, and get work done. So, what do we think? the key use cases for foldable devices are in that context then? I think if you're trying to sum it up in one word in like in a really wide view of the use cases, it's adaptability. Mm. Um, it gives the user uh, a choice uh, about how they spend their time. So whether you're uh, in an office, not at a desk, going from department to department, collaborating on, on different parts of a project, uh, it's much easier to do if you can do that in person uh, rather than uh, remotely. There's, there's always benefits to being in person. Um, as much as we love <laughs> our, uh, our video conferencing technology and what that's allowed us to do, there's just no replacement in the end, especially for large you know, collaborations involving multiple departments and people to be able to get around and, and work physically. Um, also with downtime or uh, portions of time where it was otherwise productivity barren, uh, whether it's via travel or uh, waiting in lobbies for meetings or, or what have you, uh, mo these mobile devices allow the choice to 
use that time and space more productive, uh, more productively um, by using a device that you otherwise wouldn't have had on hand because the compute power perhaps of, a, of your mobile phone isn't enough. It doesn't support the apps, doesn't have enough RAM, drive space, what have you. Um, by, by pushing the technology into this space, it's, it's allowing that use case to, for you to do something where you couldn't before on the technology. Um, you know, the, these shifting use cases are you know, meetings, video conferencing, the Microsoft Office suite stack, content delivery, um, uh, application access, um, and, and whatever productivity workflows you can think of that you usually do on your, your desktop or laptop, um, you can now do on the go. And it's, it's, it's good because you think about what a meeting is now, for example, just to borrow from that, um, you know, especially meetings are pretty prominent right now, um, uh, remote meetings, that is, um, you know, it's, it's not just about, um, you know, being able to do the meeting, but actually the changing ideas of what a meeting is. So, if, you know, now you know, it's rarely that I go to a meeting now where there's not a screen share. Um, and it's very going to be very difficult on a traditional mobile device to do a, a, a screen share effectively. Um, so having a foldable device that allows you to have people's faces on one side, the screen share on another, um, and uh, being able to easily tap around and navigate if you're doing the screen sharing or if you're just receiving it. Mm. So I think there's that that duality of the of the screens. Whether the, and we're going to talk about some of the devices in a bit in a second but the key thing the key component across all of these foldable devices is that being able to do two things at once um and i think well, the, that's the choice yeah even. and the choice to do that yeah you, know, you you don't have to do two things at once if you want to specialize that folding screen uh, to make better use of the space and detail you can if you want to adapt it to doing certain work here and certain work here you can that's that's the key um, point of these devices it is allows choice it allows adaptability to do tasks that you couldn't do before i mentioned before the one of the kind of prompts of this is that you know we're obviously big fans of, of the surface range um microsoft surface range and and um a little while ago uh, Microsoft released a duo um, and um, so I was really keen to get you in Ned to talk specifically about the duo so I'm keen to hear from you what what do we actually need to know about the the Surface Duo? So the Duo is a very interesting product it has a few design choices that are inspired and some that raised a few eyebrows because it's it's taking a, a space in the market that um, that nothing else really fills um, not 100% fills. Uh, so it is a folding device, but it's not the same as other uh, folding mobile phone style devices that we've seen before uh, with the one piece folding screen. Uh, it makes use of two separate screens, which sort of limits it in some ways, but also makes it work really well in others. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very interesting product. Um, I think it's got a lot of legs and that with design and iteration and development, it's only going to get better. Mm. So um, they've, I, one of the things, interesting things I noticed about it is that it, it's not a, it's not a windows 10 device, right? It's, it's an, an they use Android. Why do you think they like, um, why do you think Microsoft chose to go with Android and, and, and um, didn't choose to kind of revive their windows 10 mobile phone operating system? 
you ever heard the saying don't flog a dead horse <laughs> um, so there's a there's a few factors uh first of all it's it's simplicity um android is the market leader outside of apple uh and there's no way microsoft will be using um apple's operating system let's put that out there straight away so uh it it just makes sense from that perspective um I think Microsoft were never really happy with the levels of adoption of Windows Mobile. Um, there were some issues uh, with app compatibility uh, across stacks um, and just general uh, development costs that are involved in, in getting an operating system working properly. So they could have gone ahead and spent all this time, money and energy and investment in getting uh, Windows 10 Mobile uh, in a place they like it and getting it to market and then it just doesn't get adopted because the user base is already married to Android. Um, so by adopting Android and co-opting the technology working with Android, um, Microsoft now have a reliable and stable platform at launch. There's no bugs, there's no issues, it's tried and true. Uh, and it's already integrated <laughs> with the Microsoft app stack. So, you know, it didn't make sense to double up on the work. Um, so yeah, saves time, saves money, gets a working product to market. It, it, it's win for everybody. I'm interested. So this is a this is a pretty unique phone, right? It's got the two screens. Um, uh, would you say that it falls into the mobile category or the tablet category, or is it a, a, is it a category unto itself? So uh, as as these this emerging technology of, um, of, of of folding phones and folding you know, compute devices uh, come about, especially in the phone space, it's sort of asking the question again is when is a phone not a phone? Uh, and, and that got asked years ago when the first Apple smartphones came out and people like, oh, is this even a phone? What is it? We don't know. Um, so when you try to categorize this thing, I would say it's still definitely a smartphone. Um, it, it's, it's just extra. Uh, it has ca capacity and capability beyond uh, what a normal smartphone can give you and that's what microsoft's aiming for they're aiming for a point of difference uh and and something that even though price wise they, they're sort of a little bit more expensive but you get extra like it, it people generally don't have a problem paying a little more if they're getting a little more you know it's that balance about you know i get more so i pay more that's fine everyone's happy it, it, it suits my needs um and i think also the dual screen layout sort of precludes it from being compared against tablets because mm. uh, it, it can't actually do that mono screen um, content very well because of the bezels uh, mm. in between. So I don't think, um, uh, I don't think Microsoft even wanted to compete with tablets because that's, that's cannibalizing their own market with the, uh, with the surface pros. So I think they've done a, a good thing by segmenting it this way and having it operate in this respect because uh, it, it, it's probably more durable in construction because we did see a lot of early failures in these um, single screen folding devices. So I think it was, um, it was a good choice in that respect to go that way uh, and to develop the product in that way and stick to it rather than trying to be uh, the same as everybody else. So you mentioned, you mentioned pay a bit more to get more. So how much can we expect to pay for the, for the duo and how does that compare to some of the other um, and we're calling it a smartphone. You, you've just said that it's a smartphone. So how does that compare to some of the other smartphones on the market? 
Uh, so there is a bit of a price premium on that, as we alluded to, uh, can be anywhere around 200 to 300 US dollars, depending on um, depending on what sort of model and spec we're comparing it to. Um, but it's the price premium reflects the hybrid phone productivity device nature of, of, of the duo. Uh, it's not just a phone um, mm. in the same way that, uh, you know, an iPhone is a phone or a Samsung Galaxy is a phone um, with its one screen and um, the support of, of certain apps. So uh, I think that's where the premium comes from. Uh, over time, we've come to see the mobile phone as more than a device to call other phones. So this is just a natural extension of that uh, evolution towards doing more and more and more and mm. more every mm. time they release a new product. It's got to do more. If it mm. does the same or less, well, what's the point? If you look at some of the other folding smartphones on the market, most of them are all quite beefy and thick and, um, you know, they don't even fold flat. Whereas, you know, the, because of the hinge um, uh, that they've got on the, on, on the near, on the duo, it, um, it, it folds perfectly flat. It's super thin. Um, and, you know, like a, like a surface, uh, looks like a mini um, surface laptop. It's, it's really pretty. It's a really pretty device. And I think that the value of that can't be over on the side. I think Microsoft has done a great job in making pretty devices. Um, you know, and, and easy, it, it, there's no substitute. If you, if you, if your smartphone isn't a pretty thing, then it's going to detract from it and people aren't going to be interested. So that's an important thing. Um, last question. What do you think um, on the, on the duo? Um, what do you think the duo, um, the release of the duo says about Microsoft plans for the mobile slash tablet space? Hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. So it's, it's not Microsoft's whole plan for mobile uh, tablet space, but it is a big part of it. Um, it's no secret <laughs> that it's a space that Microsoft have coveted for some time because as, as, as Bill Gates has stated on a number of occasions, um, one of his greatest ever regrets is, is losing ground to Apple and Android at the start of, um, start of the smartphone era. Uh, even though he wasn't technically CEO at the time, um, I think he was on the board of directors or something like that. But um, he still thinks that he's responsible for um, for one of the greatest you know, failures in, in in Microsoft's history. They, if they had gotten onto this at the start, they they could be the market leader um, quite quite handily uh, in in this space. So they're they're chasing that dream that that has eluded them for a long time. So don't think they're not going to invest a lot of time and resources into this. Um, and with the rise of the mobile market, it, it only makes sense, like all tech companies, um, you know, from the hardware manufacturers to the product developers and the app developers, everyone is going mobile, 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 because everyone's on the move now. We can't afford to sit still. Um, downtime's a thing of the past for most people. So, um, yeah, I think uh, there, there are other factors as well. Um, to do with the, the ecosystem itself. Microsoft are going to become very invested in the Android ecosystem, uh, or at least, you know, co-opting it for some time because um, they're, they're making use of ARM processors in the new Pro X line. Uh, Microsoft and Apple have both tipped their hats that ARM is going to be an architecture that they are going to work very heavily with because it's very, very energy efficient. And that's what mobile devices need. There's no point 
um, being able to, to crunch huge compute if your, your battery's flat. You know, you've got, you've got zero processing power at that point. So um, I think, and, and one of the main issues currently between ARM and x86, the traditional um, CPU architecture is that the, the language in which the apps are written and the way they speak to the metal, uh, the processes is different. They speak a completely different language. So uh, at the moment, um, uh, things developed for ARM don't run well on x86 and vice versa. Um, at best, you've got a translator in the middle, uh, but that is a big performance hit. Uh, it's an energy hit. So it kind of makes it a little bit redundant. So uh, I think, um, as, and even with NVIDIA, buying arm they they spent 40 billion dollars to buy arm uh because this is where the industry is going uh and in and in you know three four five years once the uh the ecosystems developed on an app and operating system basis um we're going to see a lot of arm technology or based technology uh in in mobile devices so even apple's um CPUs, even though they're an in-house design, they're still based on the ARM architecture. So everything is sort of heading to that small, light, energy efficient mobile space. It's mm. just, the, just the nature of it. Mm. Exciting times for uh, smart mobile devices, eh? It's not, and obviously it's not just mobile devices that are getting the foldable treatment. Um, so Lenovo has released the ThinkPad X1 Fold, um, which, which I think came out earlier this year. Um, so that's a very kind of different field device have gone a very different way. Um, it's a kind of different kind of category. So I'm keen to get your thoughts on this one then. Mm. So they called it, the, um, can we be really lame here? They called it the X1 Fold, but it's more like X1 Bold. I thought it was a really bold choice for them to, um, to develop this product. And they've gone to huge lengths uh, to get this market to product, uh, pro <laughs> this product to market first. Um, I'm so excited by it. I can't even speak. Uh, so th these sort of products, you, you just can't bang them out in a, in a year or two years. These, is, these require massive investment uh to get working and working well um so they would have actually started development of this product back when uh folding screens especially the the one piece folding screens uh had a lot of bad press a lot of bad press um so that was that was a really sort of uh, inspired choice to stick with it and develop it because it quite it, it could have quite easily backfired but it they've gone to a lot of lengths to get this right uh, and it it's, it looks really, really good, actually. Um, it, it's got me very excited with, um, with what it can do. So um, I think, uh, yeah, good on them for sticking to that design choice and developing it and making sure that it was functional and getting it to market pretty yeah. much before everyone else on, in the laptop space. So what, what are the key things from a specifications feature point of view that we need to know about this one? It's it's fairly comparable um, to most workplace level laptops. So the stuff that we find in our office that the guys are working on, that, that most offices are working on, it's that ubiquitous, you know, i5 Intel processor, uh, eight gigabytes of RAM, that sort of thing. But it's got a twist. Um, so it's got the new uh, Intel Lakefield um, CPU architecture in it, which is the, the much touted big little. Um, it, it's designed in such a way where it has one big processor on the chip and then four little ones that are very energy efficient. So when you've got a burst load, so like it's waking from sleep or you're opening an app or asking it to do something to start up, the big processor comes in, 
you, you know, big power does gets that job done, but the heavy lifting behind the scenes, running background tasks and keeping the whole show together are the four little energy efficient cores. So that's, that's an attempt to, you know, keep performance high when needed, but energy consumption low when it's not, uh, which is, uh, which is so far um, had really good results. Mm. So uh, that, that's, that's a really uh, interesting part to me as, as a CPU sort of tech head, um, that this sort of these new architectures and new designs uh, are coming along to give us these different packages that can do different things. Um, it has a, you know, as I mentioned, the eight gigabytes of RAM, uh, which is enough for general productivity tasks, obviously uh, for a little bit more heavier workloads, if you're working with big data sets or, you know, a lot of PDF um, editing, you're going to probably want more than eight, but for most users, eight's fine. Uh, the only issue is because of the small compact nature of it, it's, it's soldered RAM. So it's not upgradable, which, uh, maybe they'll bring out a 16 gigabyte variant, um, which would be great for future proofing. But I think for, for an, er, for emerging technology, I think the, the eight gigabytes is, is quite fine. And the main difference between the models is actually the storage. So they've all got the same screen. They've all got the same processor. They've all got the same RAM. Uh, your main point of differentiation is, is, is storage and warranty. Um, right. The premium, premium models uh, have a three year uh, premium warranty, whereas the, the entry level models have a one year return to depot warranty. Right. Um, all models support Wi-Fi 6. They all have the same five megapixel camera. Um, 13 inch OLED screen. Uh, so it, as far as specs go, I think um, you're pretty much narrowing it down to what your storage option is. But you're not really buying this device for those kind of features, right? Like you, you, those, those are all kind of secondary to the, to the key feature is the fact that the damn thing folds, right? <laughs> that's it. That's it. So you can, you've, you've got, enough compute to do the tasks that you need to do on the go. That's the, that's the key takeaway there. Um, other than the fact that, you know, it, it's, it's adaptable to situations, you know, one minute you're working on a tablet drawing, you know, designs or sketches, and then you're folding it in half and you've got a touch keypad on one half and a screen on the other to fire off a few quick emails in between, or uh, you can even put it back into tablet mode, use the kickstand, uh, and th there's got a little Wi-Fi keyboard um, that you can actually use because I'm personally not a big fan of touch uh, keypads. I like the physical keypad. So that, um, that inclusion is really, and it comes as standard across the board uh, on all the models. So um, it, it's, that's a good inclusion. You get the pen as well. So you, you, it doesn't matter which model you buy, um, it can do it all and it does it well. I think it's when you think about what the price tag is, though. I'm not surprised that they've they've thrown in the uh, the pen and the and the key keyboard. How much can we expect to pay uh, for the ThinkPad X1 Fold? Ooh, they've just had a little bit of a price drop, I believe. Yes. Uh, and the I think the top model is just under six thousand dollars. Yeah. Bit of touch under. The last time I, I yeah. checked, it was $5,900 Australian. It, it's, look, it, it, it's not for everyone. Um, it's, uh, it's certainly for the early adopters and, and, and the real tech heads out there and people who can make use of it. But I think that, that price is for the one terabyte model, um, which I think, unless you're using 
like a, a lot of apps and they all have to be stored locally. Um, I don't think you need it. I think, I think the, the 256 gigabyte model uh, at a much lower price point, I think, what were they around about the $4,000 mark, somewhere around about there. They make a lot more sense. Like you've got a quarter of the physical storage, but physical storage is not so much of a thing now that we've got such ubiquitous access to cloud storage. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're organizational cloud storage, which most organizations that would use this device have in abundance, or even your own personal OneDrive, like everyone with a Microsoft account has a terabyte of free storage. Why, why are we needing uh, one terabyte of NVMe when 256 will do the job and save you near two grand? So, but thinking about it then more holistically, you know, there's so many, um, foldable devices on the market right now. Um, and if you do some Googling, you'll find that there's even more planned for, and, and most of the key players have something in the works. You know, what do you think the future holds for foldable devices? Uh, I think it's the way things have to go. Um, there's no there's no choice about it. You know, if you want to do more, you need a, you need a physically larger device to do it, but you can't carry that physically larger device around. It's not as mobile, it's not as portable, it uses more power. Um, we, we, there needs to be a way of shrinking the footprint. So folding devices at this point in technology until you know we, we discover holographic projection, you know, or something along those lines. That's- Minority report style, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, until that comes along, then then folding is is the way to do it because it gives us a way of reducing that um, that layout footprint while still retaining um, the flexibility and the productivity. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the F Team. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts from, and the video is available on our website. Go to www.ftpl.com.au.